Let's take a look at the 50 principles of miracles. The first one states, there is no order of difficulty in miracles. One is not harder or bigger than another. They are all the same. All expressions of love are maximal. This is a constant theme in the Course. Those of you who are studying the lessons know that it is a constant theme in the instructions of the lessons. That you are, for example, to look around the room and that you are not to uh, distinguish between one thing or another. That whatever your eyes fall upon, that is sufficient for the particular lesson that is uh, being presented for that day. So one of the themes is simply <coughs> that there is no order or degree to anything. That whatever we look upon is either love or fear. There are no little murders. And because of that, there is nothing that is impossible. And those of you who have been interested in spiritual healing may have been perplexed, as I have, as to how uh, you can heal a cancer, but you can't heal a wart on your toe. Uh, it doesn't seem to make any sense. The things that we would think would be difficult uh, and the things we think would be easy seem to have nothing to do with this gentle dissolving of our problems. They don't go in the order that we think of as difficult. And this, of course, is the grounds whereby we do not judge other people. We realize that we're all chasing idols of some sort. So does it really make any difference what the idol is? Does it matter if we're addicted to uh, the jacuzzi uh, or to alcohol? Does it really matter that we administer a psychological beating to our child or a physical beating? Society certainly says it does. But A Course in Miracles says it is either love or fear. Either you are looking upon the peace of God or you are looking upon murder. And if you make any distinction between one form of murder and another, you're simply deceiving yourself. Number one ends with the sentence, all expressions of love are maximal. So if there is no degree or order to anything, then there can be no range to our giving. Some people do not deserve more of our love. And this is the mistake we make. We really believe that there are people who deserve more of our love. And that's why we put such heavy restraints on our love. And that's why eventually we discover this tremendous relief 
that occurs when we remove all restraints from our love and we stop defending ourselves against infinite, limitless love. But that begins in, with little steps. It begins simply with the decision that today there will be no range to my giving. As best I can, I will give with all my heart and all my soul to everyone I meet and to everyone who comes to my thought. There will be no range to my giving. The second principle states that miracles as such do not matter. The only thing that matters is their source, which is far beyond evaluation. To me, this means that we must renounce results. There is no range to our giving. And as we practice this, we wonder why some people aren't grateful. And we withdraw our gifts. We make attempts to heal our bodies. We make attempts to bring our lives into order and become very discouraged. But miracles as such do not matter. All that really matters is the source that inspires them. And that is why Jesus said, Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven, and all these things shall be added unto you. Because who in this room has not had at least one day in which they made the peace of God their single purpose and everything fell gently into place? It was all taken care of. Time and again, I have seen children with amputated legs, brain tumors, people in hospitals, I'm thinking now of a woman who was totally paralyzed except for her eyes and her mouth. And I've seen these children and these adults begin to help somewhat. They realize they're in a position to, to be of service to another person, maybe just to cheer them up, anything. And for that moment, they are not aware of the amputated leg or the brain tumor or even the total paralysis. They are completely unaware of it when their mind is engaged in love. Let's go down to number four. Number three. I'll, I'll read number three. It seems self-explanatory. Miracles occur naturally as expressions of love. The real miracle is the love that inspires them. In this sense, everything that comes from love is a miracle. All miracles mean life. And God is the giver of life. His voice will direct you very specifically. You will be told all you need to know. Probably most of us have given lip, ser lip service to that sentence. You will be told all you need to know. And yet, how many questions do we have as we go through the day? 
Will we be able to get a babysitter tonight? Um, what, what should we do about this? How are we going to answer so-and-so's insult? What are we going to do about Christmas? Should we go home for Christmas? You will be told all you need to know. That means that the future is of no use to us because we will be told all we need to know. This seems so impossible because we've been approaching life in exactly the opposite manner. We've approached it under the belief that unless we make provision, no provision will be made. And yet how many times did we find ourselves in our lives unable to make provision and saw that provision was indeed made? As I look at you, I see a woman who, uh, who needed to sell her store. And I remember the story she told me about how the sale just gently fell into place. It had nothing to do with her striving to, to sell the store. When it was time for the store to sell, there was the person to buy it. If we were to just begin telling that kind of story, I bet we could fill a book with a thousand different stories. Number five states, miracles are habits and should be involuntary. They should not be under conscious control. Consciously selected miracles can be misguided. That's really the same thing. It simply says that we need not decide what needs to be changed. And yet most of our mental life is spent deciding what needs to be changed. So we renounce results. We renounce questions. And we renounce all consideration of what needs to be changed. Now, if we were to do those three things, even for an instant, all we would have left is now. The only activity that would be left to us would be to be happy. And all of us have given up everything at one time or another. We've given up everything except our misery. And that we don't want to give up. We don't want to give up worrying. Because if we gave up worrying, we'd have to give up judging. If we left ourselves alone, we would have to leave other people alone. If we trusted the hand of God in our life, we would have to trust the hand of God in everyone else's life. And it's so obvious that so many people are out of control. <laughs> and out, out of place and shouldn't be saying the things that they're saying. They should never have been elected to the positions that they're holding. <laughs> Number six states, miracles are natural. When they do not occur, something has gone wrong. 
So we get back to a theme that we've discussed before. This is our third service. That everything that happens to us, God, our higher self, our deeper self, universal mind, love, the collective unconscious, the omega point, whatever you wish to call it. I call it God. And since this is a Course in Miracles service, I'll use the Course terminology. Everything that happens, everything that will happen to us today, after you leave this service, everything that will happen has been anticipated by God and blessed. Even your stupid mistakes. They're all anticipated. Who you were to meet in the restaurant. Who was to call you. All of it's been anticipated. And blessed. This is not apparent. The blessing is not apparent. But it's there. The miracle is there. So either we're looking on a grievance or we're looking on a miracle. It seems that we're only looking on one thing when we look at another person, when we look upon an event in our life, when we look upon something that's happened to our body or our finances. We think we're seeing only one thing. But we begin to recognize that within our mind there are interpretations differing as to what we are looking at. One says, what you look upon is the coming of a blessing. The other one says, what you look upon is a loss and a curse. So fear is the only mistake that we can make. If we are afraid, everything that we see is a danger. It's threatened. It can hurt us. We will lose it. It will turn on us. A beautiful little pebble can get in our shoe. And now we limp till we can get it out. A shiny piece of glass can cut us. I know a man who said he was, his foot was cut by a Rice Krispie. <laughs> We look at plants and uh, each leaf seems in competition with every other leaf in that plant, striving to, to take all the sun for itself and block out the sun of the leaves that are below it. Every form of life seems to feed on the death of something. And yet we are told that beyond this vision of death, 
there is another reality, that there is a counterpart for everything we see. There is a miracle for everything that we behold. And what does it take to see the miracle? Well, of course, the miracle says it takes nothing to see it. That what's happening is that we are defending ourselves so strongly against seeing it that we see the world that fear paints. And that all we need to do is to rest from the activity of self-defense. All we need to do is not defend ourselves against love. Just cease that activity. And the real world will appear before us. And we will see the earth as Jesus and so many others have looked upon it and described it as Walt Whitman has looked upon it, as Emerson has looked upon it, as all the prophets and the avatars have looked upon it. And we read this beautiful portrait and we say, where is that world? What are they seeing? Well, they weren't seeing what fear described. They were seeing what we see when we let go of our fear. Number seven, miracles are everyone's right. No one deserves to lose. No one deserves to lose. And, and yet, if you're like me, I think people deserve to lose at least uh, 86 times a day. <laughs> miracles are everyone's right, but purification is necessary first. And purification is one of the things that we talked about in our opening service, our Thanksgiving service. It simply means a still and clean mind. A mind is not agitated. A mind is not working. A mind is at rest. A rested mind is a pure mind. The mind is naturally pure. It's naturally clean. It naturally has no guilts, no grievances, no fears about the future. All that must be manufactured and it, it, it uh, requires a tremendous effort to sustain an anxiety or a hatred. A tremendous effort. Quite arbitrary evidence has to be reviewed and reviewed for the anxiety or the grievance to come off that assembly line that we've set up. Number eight says miracles are healing because they supply a lack. They are performed by those who temporarily have more for those who temporarily have less. And number nine says miracles are a kind of exchange. Like all expressions of love, which are always miraculous in the true sense, the exchange reverses the physical laws. They bring more love both to the giver and the receiver. A healing without love is a mistake. The manifestation of Mercedes in our life without love <coughs> is hatred. A new wardrobe 
without gentleness and kindness does not come from God. Nor does self-imposed poverty. Love is the only miracle. What flows from love is a miracle. What does not flow from love is a mistake. And that is the reverse of the physical laws. The second reverse is that when we give a miracle to others, we give it to ourselves. When we give honesty away, we are more honest. When we give gentleness away, we are more gentle. When we give health away, we are healthier. So, spiritual reality, which surrounds us, operates exactly the reverse of physical reality. If you give money away on a physical plane, you have less money. If you give someone your car, you don't have it. Or if you lend them your car, you don't have it temporarily. If you invite someone into your house, you have less space. If you share a bathroom with your spouse, only one person can sit on the toilet at a time. <laughs> Marriages break up over these things. <laughs> the only advice that I can remember my grandfather giving me as a boy was my nickname was Pancho Pancho the key to a happy marriage is separate bathrooms But love and gentleness and peace and health and strength and sanity and freedom operate in the reverse manner. The more you give it away, the more you have. And there's a very simple way that you can demonstrate this for yourself. If when you leave here today, if sometime during the day you find yourself depressed... Open your mind and let anyone else who may be depressed come to your thought. Just let whoever comes to your thought come. Uplift them in your thought. Give them your strength and your joy. And see what happens. There's a little uh, game that I have in a book I wrote called A Book of Games that put this in a form that uh, I found useful for several days. <laughs> Nothing seems to last forever. <laughs> but we've all had experiences either directly or indirectly with biofeedback. We've at least heard of the biofeedback equipment. So what happens is you hook yourself up to a biofeedback machine of some sort and it will feed back to you will give you some sensory or auditory or visual clue as to what's happening in the palm of your hand or your brain or whatever. So this little game is set up in this way. You pretend for a few minutes that everyone you look upon 
is a brain cell. Your brain cell. So this, you're in a, you're, you've gone to a laboratory and they've made someone that looks different than you. This is their biofeedback machine. They're a version of you, as we all are a version of each other. But they have long hair instead of short, and they're a few inches taller, whatever else, different sex, whatever it may be. And this is the biofeedback machine. But actually, it's one of your brain cells. And so the practice goes like this. Whatever you give to that brain cell, which is dressed up like another person, immediately feeds back into your brain. So if you complain about not getting enough sleep last night, a complaint and the distress that goes with it is what goes back into your mind. If you give your strength to this person, then it's your strength that comes back. If you make them happy, then one of your brain cells is happy. This, this rule is so simple. It's been stated in every religion and philosophy that I've ever looked at. Our Bible puts it in many metaphors about casting bread on the water and it coming back, about sowing, reaping what you sow. Number 10 states that the use of miracles as spectacles to induce belief is a misunderstanding of their purpose. The ego turns all things to praise. And so as we attempt to give our gifts and an insight comes to us as to how we might be able to make someone happy. Or an insight comes to us as to what may be going on in a particular area of our life. Or we read a passage in a book that turns on a light. Notice that your ego will immediately turn that to praise. Notice that immediately your ego will imagine a situation in which you will be telling someone this insight. So-and-so needs to hear this, you'll think. I'll be sure and tuck this into the conversation the next time that I'm with them. The ego is a murderer. And every gentle thought we receive from God, from the peaceful part of our mind, the ego immediately turns it to praise, turns it to ashes. Notice this. And once you notice it, you'll see that you don't want the souring of the peace of God that flows into your mind. A Course in Miracles says, the Holy Spirit speaks to you. He does not speak to anyone else. <laughs> Course in Miracles says, 
The function of the teacher of God is to accept atonement for himself. And it says, those who think that they have to atone do not understand atonement. <laughs> so all that comes into our mind, all we look upon that we find bright, uplifting, is for our instruction only. We need not mentally pass it along to anyone and thereby kill it. So those are just a few of the thoughts I had as I read those first ten principles of miracles. Next Sunday, uh, we'll take up the second ten and the second lesson and the uh, workbook. So now let's turn to the first lesson and the workbook. And you have that before you. Let me read it through. It's very short. And then we'll do it together. Lesson number one. Nothing I see in this room, on this street, from this window, in this place, means anything. This is an extremely frightening thought to many people. Many people will read the first two or three lessons, and that's the end of the Course in Miracles. Because they've just set eyes on this dear, dear object over there in the corner of the room, and they know that that means something. Now look slowly around you and practice applying this idea very specifically to whatever you see. And it gives the examples. Then look further away from your immediate area and apply the idea to a wider range. And it gives more examples. Notice that these statements are not arranged in any order. So that goes back, of course, to the first principle of the Course in Miracles. Those of, those of you who were here yesterday said that the purpose of the lessons is merely to train our mind to think along the lines that the text sets forth. And now, this is the first lesson that begins to show us how to take what is merely an abstract idea and put it to good use. Notice that these statements are not arranged in any order and make no allowance for differences in the kinds of things to which they are applied. That is the purpose of the exercise. The statement should merely be applied to anything you see. As you practice the idea for the day, use it totally indiscriminately. And you will remember also that in the introduction it said that it didn't matter whether or not you agreed with the idea. It didn't even matter if you felt a strong objection to it. But if you would simply apply it as the lesson indicated, that you would receive the full benefits of the idea. Do not attempt to apply it to everything you see, for these exercises should not become ritualistic. That goes back to the uh, principle stating that consciously selected miracles can be misguided. If we decide that we, uh, that we need to stop masturbating, and that this is the this is the priority of our life, and that uh, we will make no more spiritual progress until we cut this out. 
we have consciously selected a miracle to perform. How do we know that's our next step to take? Or whatever other little guilt that we think that we that we have in our life. And who does not have a number of little guilty areas? These become our priorities. And of course we set the thing up so it's impossible to solve. And we wonder why we're unhappy. Do not attempt to apply to everything you see, for these exercises should not become ritualistic. Only be sure that nothing you see is specifically excluded. <coughs> so we take each thing that comes to our attention. That's the thing to which we are applying our knowledge of the laws of God. Whatever comes to our attention, we are not to decide what should be given our full attention. We just take the things that come to our attention. Of course, all the Eastern philosophies have been telling us that for thousands of years. Only be sure that nothing you see is specifically excluded. One thing is like another as far as the application of the idea is concerned. Each of the first three lessons should not be done more than twice a day each, preferably morning and evening nor should they be attempted for more than a minute or so, unless that entails a sense of hurry, a comfortable sense of leisure is essential. So comfort is the same as love, comfort is the same as purity. To be comfortable is to be a saint. To be comfortable is to be a healer. One moment of comfort will heal anyone in your presence. If you're completely comfortable for one instant, miracles will just pop all over the place. But be in a, of, in a state of tension and you are in a state of murder. So let's practice this. We'll just take this lesson and do it. We'll follow the instructions and not do it for more than a minute or so. I'll lead you in it. And then I'll end by just a brief discussion of what this idea means to me. Look slowly around you and practice applying this idea very specifically to whatever you see. And here are some examples. This table does not mean anything. This chair does not mean anything. This hand does not mean anything. This foot does not mean anything. This pen does not mean anything. This sense of embarrassment, if you happen to see someone else's eyes, does not mean anything. So, let's just practice that for just a few seconds. Just look around, and whatever your eyes light upon, let them light upon whatever they light upon. Simply say, this, whatever it is, chair, bulb plants, curtains, do not mean anything. Just say that, even if you don't understand the purpose of it, just say it just for a second to yourself. It won't hurt you.
Okay. Then look farther away from your immediate area and apply the idea to a wider range. That door does not mean anything. That body does not mean anything. That lamp does not mean anything. That sign does not mean anything. That shadow does not mean anything. So, wherever you look, look a little further this time. Whatever you see, say, that it doesn't mean anything. Okay. Now you've done the first lesson in the Course in Miracles. That's all there was to it. It asks that you do it simply one more time, but not, but no more than that. So some other time during the day, when it occurs to you, just practice that. Not more than a minute or so. <clears throat> if I had a glass, and this is an example that's presented in a later lesson, maybe the second or third. If I had a water glass up here, how would I know that it, it was a water glass? It's a water glass to me. To a one-year-old, it's not a water glass. To an animal, it's not a water glass. How do I know, for example, that it is a expensive water glass when I look at it? Well, I know that if I drop it and it breaks into a thousand pieces, it must be a very fine water glass. If it bounces, it's very cheap. It's probably plastic. It doesn't break. See the judgments that we have on everything? very fragile, it's very fine. If, it's, if it endures, it's cheap, it's no good. <laughs> what is this? What is this? Is this a rug? What does it mean? A Course in Miracles points out that nothing has any inherent meaning. And this is the key as to how not to judge. My brother, who lives in Los Alamos, was praying recently. And he was asking, how can I not judge my enemies? And God's answer was, by not having any. <laughs> the reason that it's so difficult for us to forgive people is that we think there is an inherent meaning in what they've just done in the tone of their voice, in the tilt of their head, in the clothes that they're wearing, in this particular habit reoccurs in their lives. We think it has an inherent meaning. We're not responsible for it. That's just the way it is. We look at uh, a person's face. We think by the way the face is shaped, we know something about the character of this person. We will make a quick judgment just like that. A Course in Miracles says, a face, a nose, has no meaning. Do you remember the song about short people? That, right, you know, that was a very popular song because a lot of people think that short people 
have an inherent meaning. If you're short, you're automatically pompous and aggressive and obnoxious and on and on and on. Isn't that silly? But we do that with every single thing that our eyes rest on. We think it has some meaning in itself. Now how can we see the miracle that God has placed behind the object or the person or the event in our life if we insist that it already has an inherent meaning? And what is the meaning that God has placed in everything? The meaning we place in everything is that it will deteriorate and eventually make us unhappy. That it can hurt us. That it only indicates what we need more of or what we need less of. It indicates some distress that only the future can solve. Everything that we look upon assaults us in some way because we think it has an inherent meaning. Forget that meaning just for an instant and God can show you the purpose that he's assigned to that. And this is the basis of all the all the uh, mystical experiences, all the visions that people have had. Joel Goldsmith talked about standing on a balcony in Hawaii and looking out. And suddenly, he had a mystical experience. And he saw that he was the earth from which the trees arose. And he was the trees that arose from the dirt. And he was the birds. All the birds that lit on the branches. And he was the branch that held the bird. And he was the breeze. And he was the cheek that the breeze caressed. And on and on and on. And we can read that and say, what was he psychotic? What happened there? I've never had an experience like that. These visions, these mystical experiences, these satories, these revelations have been recorded over and over again. What is this? Some sort of madness? What are these people that, uh, that walk away from their businesses and their lives like Peace Pilgrim did? Gave up her fancy family, fancy name did nothing but uh, keep the dress on her back, toothbrush, comb, and some stamps. It's all she had. She recently died, and I promise you there will be many, many books written about her and all the lives that she touched for so many years. Very few people knew about the family she came from, the wealth that she had, but they certainly knew of the gift of love that she gave. She had no overcoat. She had no food. She always had a place to sleep. She always had plenty to eat. She was always taken out of the cold. For years and years and years, this went on. How can that happen? Simply by seeing that nothing that we look upon has any inherent meaning, then God can show us 
that everything in our life is there to bless us. That the roof over our head is to protect us. That the light, or to give us light so we can see. That the chairs are here to hold us up and make us comfortable. That these screens are here to let our eyes rest on this lovely color of blue. And on and on and on as we look around, we can see God's blessing in each and every day. These selections are from the workbook and also from the text. I'd like to read this little prayer. It does not seem to me that I can choose to have but peace today. And yet, my God assures me that his sons, like himself, let me as they have faith in him who says, I am God's son. And let the peace I choose be mine today, bear witness to the truth of what he says. God's son can have no cares and must remain forever in the peace of heaven. In his name I give today to finding what my Father wills for me, accepting it as mine, and giving it to all my Father's sons along with me. I would like to read this little prayer from the workbook for students as our blessing for today. Father, I come to you today to seek the peace that you alone can give. I come in silence, in the quiet of my heart, the deep recesses of my mind. I wait and listen for your voice. My Father, speak to me today. I come to hear your voice in silence and in certainty and love. Sure, you will hear my call and answer me. This is taken from Lesson 189. I feel the love of God within me now. There is a light in you the world cannot perceive. And with its eyes, you will not see this light, for you are blinded by the world. Yet you have eyes to see it. It is there for you to look upon. It was not placed in you to be kept hidden from your sight. This light is a reflection of the thought we practice now. To feel the love of God within you is to see the world anew, shining in innocence, alive with hope, and blessed with perfect certainty and love. Who could feel fear? 
in such a world as this. It welcomes you, rejoices that you came, and sings your praises as it keeps you safe from every form of danger and of pain. It offers you a warm and gentle home in which to stay a while. It blesses you throughout the day and watches through the night as silent guardian of your holy sleep. It sees salvation in you and protects the light in you in which it sees its own. It offers you its flowers and its snow in thankfulness of your benevolence. This is the world the love of God reveals. These two selections are from the text. Let us be still an instant and forget all things we ever learned, all thoughts we had and every preoccupation we hold of what things mean and what their purpose is. Let us remember not our own ideas of what the world is for. We do not know. Let every image held of everyone be loosened from our minds and swept away. Be innocent of judgment, unaware of any thoughts of evil or of good that ever crossed your mind, of anyone. Now do you know him not? But you are free to learn of him and learn of him anew. Now is he born again to you, and you are born again to him, without the past that sentenced him to die, and you with him. Now is he free to live as you are free, because an ancient learning passed away and left a place for truth to be reborn. The miracle comes quietly into the mind that stops an instant and is still. It reaches gently from that quiet time and from the mind it heals in quiet then to other minds, to share its quietness, and they will join in doing nothing to prevent its radiant extension back into the mind which caused all minds to be. Born out of sharing, there can be no pause in time to cause the miracle delay and hastening to all unquiet minds and bringing them an instant's stillness when the memory of God returns to them. Their own remembering is quiet now. And what has come to take its place will not be wholly unremembered afterwards. I'm going to read uh, two selections from the workbook. The first one is from the lesson entitled Salvation of the World Depends on Me. Here is the statement that will one day take all arrogance away from every mind. Here is the thought of true humility 
which holds no function as your own, but that which has been given you. It offers your acceptance of a part assigned to you without insisting on another role. It does not judge your proper role. It but acknowledges the will of God is done on earth as well as heaven. It unites all wills on earth in heaven's plan to save the world, restoring it to heaven's peace. There is one way, and only one, to be released from the imprisonment your plan to prove the false is true has brought to you. Accept the plan you did not make instead. Judge not your value to it, if God's voice assures you that salvation needs your part and that the whole depends on you, be sure that it is so. The arrogant must cling to words, afraid to go beyond them to experience which might affront their stance. Yet are the humble free to hear the voice which tells them what they are and what to do. Salvation in the world depends on me. The peace of God is shining in you now, and from your heart extends around the world. It pauses to caress each living thing, and leaves a blessing with it that remains forever and forever. What it gives must be eternal. It removes all thoughts of the ephemeral and valueless. It brings renewal to all tired hearts and lights all vision as it passes by. All of its gifts are given everyone, and everyone unites in giving thanks to you who give and you who have received. The shining in your mind reminds the world of what it has forgotten. And the world restores the memory to you as well. From your salvation radiates with gifts beyond all measure, given and returned. To you, the giver of the gift, does God himself give thanks. And in his blessing, does the light in you shine brighter, adding to the gifts you have to offer to the world? The peace of God is shining in me now. Let all things shine upon me in that peace. And let me bless them with the light in me.